Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. What do they say? Aleph bet. Aleph bet. Okay, we have uh, it meaning strong, power, leader, oxhead. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that they are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decree. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all of your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Okay. Um, let's see. We'll read this first. Today is the 10th. I think it's the 10th of June. That's what we're going to do. June 13, 10. Okay. Some people can never get enough of themselves. No. Alexander III of Macedon, whom we know as Alexander the Great, was born in 356 BC. The most successful world conqueror of all time, Alexander was such an important figure in world history that chapters 2, 7, 8, and 11 of Daniel all contain prophecies of him and his kingdom. Daniel 11, 3, and 4 prophesies this of Alexander. Then a mighty king will arise to power who will rule a vast kingdom and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had. For his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Even as a boy, Alexander was fearless. He tamed a beautiful spirited horse named Bucephalus that no one else dared to touch. Bucephalus later carried his master all the way to India. Tutored by Aristotle, Alexander at the age of 16 became co-regent of Macedon with his father, King Philip of Macedon, who had been the first person to unite the cities of Greece into a political organization. Immediately, the teenager was thrust into leadership of a military campaign. Two years later, as commander of part of the Macedonian cavalry, he saved his father's life in battle. When Alexander was 20, his father died and he became king. He likewise became the leader of the League of Corinth, founded by his father, uniting all of Greece under his authority. <clears throat> Alexander immediately went on the offensive and first conquered Asia Minor, then the Mediterranean coast, all the way to Egypt. There he founded the city of Alexandria, which soon became the greatest city of the Mediterranean. He named it after himself, as he did more than 60 other cities, apparently being quite pleased with his name. Next, Alexander's ambitions led him east. His greatest career accomplishment was when he defeated the Persians and, as the prize, controlled the splendid capitals of its empire. He reached India on his faithful old horse, Bucephalus, in 327 BC. At that point, his weary soldiers refused to go any further, and so Alexander turned back to the west. There he shocked his Greek compatriots by adopting the style of the Persian court, including the harem. Alexander was so impressed with his own success that in the last year of his life, he apparently believed that the appropriate way for his Greek subjects to recognize his greatness was to worship him as a god. However, he didn't have much time to enjoy this worship. Alexander died in Babylon on 10 June 323 BC, 
at the age of only 33. In 13 years, he had conquered most of the known world, and his military triumphs spread a Greek influence over the Near East that would last for a thousand years. It is because of Alexander the Great that the New Testament was written in Greek. But after his death, the mighty kingdom Alexander had amassed was broken up and divided by his Greek generals into four parts, Macedon and Greece under Antipater, and later Cassandra, Thrace and Asia Minor under Lysimachus, Syria under Seleucus, and Egypt and Palestine under Ptolemy. God had no tolerance for a world emperor who desired to be worshipped. And it says in um, reflection, God is not impressed with those who are impressed with themselves and give themselves the credit for their accomplishments. He is a jealous God who will not share his glory with another, be he king or emperor. And from Nahum 1, and 1 2, and 3, the Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and furiously destroys his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. Question. Was it actually called Palestine back then? Uh, no. Back then it was called Canaan or, you know, the land of Israel maybe. Right. Uh, so but who, who wrote that? I don't know. Some some liberal Canaan, scholar, I'm sure. That's right. AD. It was. It he was. was the emperor of Caesar. And I forgot that. Yeah, Harbok. That's right. But they called it Palestina to right. shun the Jews who, you know, they had overthrown. And so that's right, where right. the name Palestine comes from. And uh, so, anyway, um, let's see here. We have. Uh, some prayer requests. We'll read those quick, and then we'll get started. Let's see here. We got uh, Sue Bonner has asked for prayers for her unsaved family and some depression and guilt over not being with her husband when he died. She's kind of suffering from that. And Louise Mann in England. She uh, she lost her husband, and she does. She makes all of the cards and the uh, bookmarks yeah, yeah. for us, mm -hmm. and uh, she, that may kind of go on the side for a little while. She still do it, but she's she's obviously mourning the loss of her husband. Sure. And then Lynn Ferguson, he's a friend, become a friend, and he attends online. He is moving to Sarasota. He's going to drive across the U.S., and he needs a place to stay for um, uh, just a short time while he finds a home. He has been looking to buy one, and he hasn't been able to get his children to find one for him, and so he's just going to move here and find one himself. But if uh, anybody has a place that uh, he can stay at for a few days, that would be great. And then um, Rick Fossler, I've got an email. Just got it. Let me see if I can pull it up, because I didn't write it down. I didn't have time. Uh, let's see here. If I can't find it quickly, we won't read it, and I'll just uh, give the general... Uh, is it going to gmail oh it worked good okay here we go rick it says um uh, rick fossler okay let's see what he says here uh name is rick i go by oh he's one of the online church people my wife had a serious fall last sunday and had trauma to the c4 6 area of her spinal cord and underwent surgery that night to relieve the pressure since the fall she lost all sensation from her chest to her feet some of the ability of her to move her arms has come back um, she's having trouble breathing, can't clear out the CO2 from her blood. 
And yesterday they re-intubate her and have her on a ventilator. Tonight and tomorrow they will be performing a tracheotomy to help her in her breathing. And uh, so that's all of the report on her. But we want to keep her in prayer because that sounds pretty serious there. And we'll hope that the, pray that the Lord's hand will be on them. And uh, so that's Rick. Oh, a couple things. Um, my son is getting married next Friday. And we are going to try to set up live stream. So if anybody wants to watch that, because some people have emailed me and said we'd like to watch that. And unfortunately, I'll have to wear a suit and shoes. So <laughs> That's worth seeing it I, alone. I, I don't know, but now, yeah. Yeah, you mean the, uh, yeah, you can watch around the computer. If it's live streaming, you just go to the superior word live stream and it should be there five o'clock. So just so you know, that's that's available, hopefully. No guarantees. But if there's live stream going, or you could go to the Superior Word, if you can't find it on, this, on the YouTube channel, go to the Superior Word, and one of the buttons at the top says live. You click on that, and it automatically takes you to the YouTube. So that should work as well. And then one other thing, this is kind of interesting. I woke up this morning, and I had all kinds of emails from weather people all over, Channel 13, Channel 10, Channel 7, uh, other people around the world, and they're all asking permission to play, to use our live stream webcam video from last night and what it is is there was a meteor that went across the sky which was picked up by the webcam and so uh, uh, we have it on our CSD key cam uh, website which you can go there and watch it it's about a five or eight second long video and also you can go to one of the local uh, weather stations and or news stations on the weather and they have them listed there one of them i mean it was only posted for an hour and a half and had thirty-one thousand views so it's kind of fun but uh there you go something kind of interesting there so uh, uh that's all the prayer requests that's all the announcements and um my mom got here just in time and my wife is more just in time so there you go here she comes in there. um she's bringing in any anybody wants pastries we got all kinds of uh candy bars all kinds of stuff if you want them they're in there take them home if not then uh, I'll take them down to the projects on Saturday, but all kinds of good stuff. You take you know, some Hawaiian sweet rolls, Oh, all kinds of good stuff. So that's what she just brought in. Um, if you will bring that right now, Hidako, before we get started, um, if you can't find it, don't worry about it, but uh, she's looking for something that I, I forgot at the house. Anyway, we'll go ahead and get started because she's over there fiddling around. Just bring it up when you find it. Um, uh, we're in Ephesians 3, verse 7. Whoops, we got to pray. Thank you, you, Burke. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and uh, we uh, are a little disorganized here with people showing up and uh, all kinds of things going on, but we do thank you for the uh, chance to pray for these people that we've mentioned, and uh, we thank you for every good blessing that you blessed us in Christ, and we also pray that this uh, class will be held according to your will and in accord with your word, and if there's anything that is said which is not correct, that you would alert us to it and help us to uh, uh, properly put forth doctrine for the sake of your glory and the, the honor of having your word properly explained. Lord, we pray these things that you'll be glorified, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, people showing up. That's a, yeah. that's a horrible thing. Yeah, it's terrible. It's <laughs> not bad. Okay, well, we're in Ephesians 3, verse 7 right, right. now. So if you can find that one. wherever you want. Yeah, at the beginning of the paragraph. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the ministration of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
that is the mystery made known to me by revelation as i have already written briefly this in reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to men in other generations as, as it is now been revealed by the spirit to god's holy apostles and prophets this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Okay, just a little bit different, not much, but of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So. Uh, we'll get into that right now. Oh, we're going to make this class a little bit shorter than normal for two reasons. The first reason is that uh, I've been taking antibiotics and I'm completely wiped out. It just, it, it does, doesn't make me tired so much as it just kind of makes me, uh, what's the word? You got just no energy. I'm just completely wiped Logie. out. Logie is a good word there. And um, uh, the foot if you were watching Sunday, you know I, I did some real damage to it, but uh, the foot is much better after Tuesday. It was just throbbing and huge until Tuesday, and I woke up Wednesday, and it's much, much better. So the antibiotics are working. And uh, uh, the second reason is because the bridges are leaving. This is their last week, and so we're going to have some pizza. So we're going to eat pizza, and then I'm going to rush home and go right to bed. I'm just beat. Okay, so 3-7. Apologies for all the... Uh, uh, diversions. Hedico, just bring one to me, please. The words of the words of which are referring to the gospel of the previous verse. Paul acknowledges that he became a minister of this gospel according to the gift of the grace of God. That's Paul's words, the gift of the grace of God. He was a persecutor of the church. His rightful due was to be punished for his actions. He in no way merited God's favor, and yet the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus and called him to his apostleship. This is grace. It is undeserved favor. It was the, as Paul says, the grace of God alone. And without it, he would have continued down his wayward path. However, a different end came about in him because this marvelous grace, which was given to him, as he says, by the effective working of his power. The words here should be rather translated as according to the effective working of his power. This is because the gift was bestowed in accordance with that efficiency which could transform the persecutor into Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. That's Vincent's word studies, his analysis that says that, and uh, I would go with that. I completely agree with Vincent on that. It was, not an act, it was an active, not a latent power which transformed him. Grace was bestowed. And that grace actively and sufficiently transformed him from who he was to the person he came to be. The entire verse speaks completely and solely of the power of God and the grace of God to affect his purposes in Paul and thus to carry through with his redemptive purposes in the stream of time. Life application. In our salvation and in our continued walk with Christ, it is the power of God which changes us. And it is the power of God which works in us for his sovereign purposes. Let us allow God to use us without striving against him. Rather, let each of us be an open and receptive vehicle for his workings in the circumstances in which he has placed us. Good stuff.
3.8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, that looks pretty much the same, same, and because I wasn't following right when you were reading, because I was doing something else. I was taking my antibiotic, which I forgot. No, I don't want to drink water. It'll reduce the effectiveness of the antibiotic. Yeah, I left him at home, so he could have just rushed here and got him to me. Okay, three. Yeah, I don't, I don't take water with any pills. I take aspirin. I just chew them up, and because it immediately dissolves in your body. You got a headache? You don't want to wait 15 minutes. You chew the thing, and man, bow, it's done. I'll tell you what's really good. If you've ever heard of a BC powder, that B. Mr. Magnuson, before he died, he said, this will take care of your ills, and he gave me a pack of them. And I, I live by those things now. There's no waiting for the pill to dissolve, none of that kind of Does stuff. Does it say on the back, drink with... I don't know what it or... says, but I, when I take pills, I take them straight. That's all there is to it, because it's going to go in, and I'm going to get the effective working power of that pill. Okay, 3.8 commentary. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul called himself the least the apostles. Here he takes the thought further and says that the gift of the grace of God of the previous verse was given to him who is less than the least of all the saints. These are all his quotes there. Here he uses a word found nowhere else in scripture, elachistotoros. It is a comparative formed from a superlative. The comparative refers to himself less the superlative is the one who even stands above him, the least. Paul looked into himself and saw the depth of the consciousness of sin that dwelt in him, and he reasoned that what he saw was certainly less worthy of God's favor than any other saint. To him, the makeup of who he was demonstrated the highest grace that could be given. Paul really understood that he was uh, lacking in almost all ways, and that uh, he... Uh, uh, he would not be the man he was without Christ actively intervening. And so there you go with that. Um, but he notes that this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his words there. In these words, he contrasts the saints with the Gentiles. This is evidenced from his words of Ephesians 2, verse 19. There, he said, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but, excuse me, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, so there he made the contrast, and so you can see that he is making a contrast from the saints with the Gentiles. Saints are people that are brought out of the Gentiles, but they don't become Israel somehow. They remain Gentiles, but he's making a contrast between the two. The saints refer to, <laughs> excuse me, refer to those in Christ. Until the Gentiles came to Christ, they were not saints. Therefore, he is making a contrast between them. And that brings me immediately to the thought, which I think I talked about in Ephesians already, but maybe not, is that in Catholicism, they designate people saints. They say right. that this person is a saint or that person is a saint, some popish dec decree yeah. that determines that they're saints. Okay, And then, of course, they have this guy, when the new pope is established, they have what's called the litany of the saints, and he gets up and he sings this list of people that are supposedly saints, which probably a lot of them aren't. But the fact is that you are a saint by faith in Jesus Christ. That is how you become a saint. There is no other way to become a saint. You're not a saint by designation of some pope. You're not a saint by voting 
by somebody or some group, you were a saint because you believed in Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason why. So when people say the saints, you talk to these Catholics, you can tell them that's rubbish. The Bible specifically says this, and the Bible came before the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, even if they claim they're the, the big church out there, which they're not, but even if they claim that, you could say this establishes it way before the Catholic Church was established. You are a saint by faith in Christ. Saint saints by calling. calling. What? Corinthians says you're saints by calling. Saints by calling. What, what verse is that? Uh, two. 1 Corinthians 1-2. One, two. One, two. There you go. 1 Corinthians 1-2, you are a saint by calling. <clears throat> and you know, I probably should do this because I didn't swallow it all the way and it's starting to puff out of my mouth while I'm breathing. So, huh. mm. Okay, there goes the antibiotic right down the old... There, uh, I, it start, I could see this puff coming out of my mouth, so that probably wasn't the smartest thing. Anyway, um, but nobody ever said I was the smartest guy, so... Okay, um, let's see here. The saints, um, the saints refer to those in Christ. Until the Gentiles came to Christ, they were not saints. Therefore, he is making a contrast between them. I read that Gentiles being brought into the household of God would have been unheard of. And thus, the term is almost used in a derogatory sense. Because of this, it shows the level of grace that was bestowed upon Paul once again. Despite being the least of the saints, he was given the great honor of taking this once unclean group of people and preaching the message of Christ to them. But more than just a simple message of their acceptance, he was given the honor of conveying to them, as he says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word he uses for unsearchable, unexigniatos, boy, that's a funny word, is found only here and in Romans 11.33. It conveys the idea of the inability to comprehend. The riches are being beyond finding out. It is an implicit note of the deity of Christ, which will be expanded on in the verses ahead. As only God is unsearchable, then the unsearchable riches of Christ demonstrate the divine nature of Christ. Very logical there. It is these marvelous wonders which Paul, the least of all the saints, was given the grace to share with the Gentiles. He was chosen to bring them from their lowly state to a position on the same level as the saints of God who were drawn out of the chosen nation of Israel. Okay, once again, before I read any more, we have to remember that, and I know I say this week after week, but I want to keep saying it because I want people to understand it, that the church is a body of people, Jew and Gentile. By saying that you are Jew and Gentile, it means that there are Jews and there are Gentiles, okay? The church is not Israel. The church is never called Israel. And the Jews, as a nation, are called Israel. Israel the nation, Israel the people, okay? And then we have Israel the land as well, but that's kind of a different issue. So we have Israel. We have the Gentiles that are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. And so we participate in the rights and benefits that were promised to the Jews. But that does not mean that we have become Jews or that we have become Israel, all right? It's an important thing to keep repeating because there are so many people in churches all over the world that do not get this right. They claim something that does not belong to them. They obscure what is going on in the world. And the only thing that's going to do at this point in history you know, in the past, it didn't really make any difference, you know, other than a theological argument, 
which somebody might have. It didn't make any real difference in the world itself. But in the world today, it makes a big difference because there is a group of people in the land of Israel that are Jews, and they are known as Israel. And by claiming that we are them, it harms what God is doing with them. Okay? It's an important thing that we need to understand. I don't support the nation of Israel because they are right with God. They are not. I don't support the nation of Israel because I will get some type of benefit from it, like getting a tree planted in my name in Israel. That's not going to happen. I support the land of Israel and the people of Israel because God sovereignly has taken them out of the nations as his word said that he would, and he has replanted them in that land as his word said it would. Okay, that's in Ezekiel 36, it's in Ezekiel 37, and then you know, some of the calamity that's going to come upon them is recorded in Ezekiel 38. But this is what the Lord God has determined. And because he has determined that, I support him in his decisions. Okay, so it's a very important thing at this point in human history that we make this distinction clear. We don't equivocate or waffle on this when we're talking with other people of other denominations that feel differently, but we stand on the principle that the Word of God says that they belong there and that he is doing with them what he sovereignly has chosen to do okay otherwise all we are doing is we are obscuring what he has done okay and we could go back and read romans 9 through 11 right now i'm not going to but you can see what paul says and if you just twist the words just a little bit you can make it say anything you want it to say but the words are very precise they are very clear and they show us that God is not done with, Jew, with the Jewish people. He is working with the Gentiles right now as the predominant group in this body, this commonwealth, because the Jews are under punishment. And that continues now. Just because they're back in the land does not mean that their punishment has ended. They're still being under a curse because they've rejected the Lord. Oh, we'll talk about that on Sunday again. I mean, these Deuteronomy sermons keep showing us that. But they are being prepared for the time when that will end. They're going to go through seven years of being under the law. That's coming. There will be a real uh, temple built. There will be real sacrifices, which are ineffective. But it is all to lead them, his people, the people that he came through and the people that he has protected, according to his word in Leviticus 26, he's protected them all of these years, and he has maintained his covenant despite their rejection of it. Okay? So, Please keep that in mind if you have any doubts about that. And you say, well, what about this verse or that? Send it to me and we can talk about it. I will show you where that has been misused by somebody. Or you can just go and watch whatever commentary. If it's from Romans through Ephesians already, just go watch the commentary. Or you can read the commentary of any other book of the New Testament that I have posted online. You just read the whole commentary or scroll down to whatever verse you want to go to. But this is a really, really important concept and precept that we must not equivocate on, we must not waffle on it, and we must stand firm on it for the sake of what God is doing in the world today. Like I said, if you were at the time of Martin Luther, you could come up with all kinds of theological reasons why you're the church and why you've replaced Israel. You'd be wrong, but you could do that, and it wouldn't harm anything. Well, the Jews, there's a couple here and a couple there, but they're out, and you could believe that, all right? It will harm things that are going on in the world now, and in fact, it does harm it, because we've got churches which are turning away from supporting Israel. We've got a government right now that is taking that path. They've got a, uh, you know several Muslims in the Congress now who are 
turning people's minds away from it. We've got a couple lunatics from New York that are doing that right now. And these people are turning people's, as a matter of fact, uh, one of them, that, that uh, one that always wears her turban in the, uh, the uh, Congress, uh, I think it was 35 Jews from New York or a coalition of Jews in the Congress just today came out. It was yesterday, but I just read it today, came out and they, they censored their own congressman colleague, that, that female with the, the turban on her head or whatever. What? Yeah. I don't want to say her name. I don't want, it's like that other one from New York, the little lunatic. I won't say her name. I won't include them on my prophecy updates. I don't want, I, I'm not going to give them the time of day. And that's why you never hear me speak about them. But, uh, but you're right. That's who I'm thinking of. Anyway, um, they came out and they actively spoke against her, which is something that's rare for them to do and, and, you know, against one of their own colleagues, but they've had enough. These people are, these people are bad people. They're not good people. These are bad people. So, I always wonder, the, the folks that, that insist that the church has replaced Israel. That's okay. Are they looking forward to, like, the uh, tribulation? Are they, like, going, like, yes? Uh, you know, you I don't know. You have to wonder. You church. have to wonder what people are thinking, especially the ones that believe or supposedly believe the Bible. You know, he just asked, are they uh, looking forward to the tribulation? And, you know, but it, once again, they don't believe in a rapture. They think that, you know, replacement theology and reform theology, these people believe that they are ushering in the kingdom and they're making things great so that Christ will come and just he'll just walk in and everything will be good. It's delusional. The world is not getting better. It has never been getting better since Christ left. It's just been going on a kind of a steady state and it's just now going worse and worse and worse. And it will never recover from what we are in right now. It will never recover. The state of the world will continue to decline until Christ returns. There's no doubt in my mind about that. It will never recover. We may have a revival in America. Uh, great. We probably won't, but we may, and we can pray for that. But the fact is that even if we have a revival, the people that control the big tech, the people that control the things that are going on are immoral, and their morals are not going to change. And so th it is going to continue to slide down the tube until the tribulation period starts, and they're just wrong. So this is why we really need to hold fast to this theology. Israel is Israel there in the land, and it is for God's sovereign purposes. And this is, it's all right what Paul is referring to right now. So uh, life application, then we'll go into 3.9. It says, uh, life application, those who understand the depth of sin which dwells in their soul will more fully appreciate the magnificence of the grace which is bestowed upon them through Jesus Christ. Okay, if you don't understand your level of sin and how appalling it is to God, how degrading it is to his glory, then you will never understand the grace that was bestowed upon you. Okay, and some people just don't, you know, and then of course you get people that have always been in the church. They've always known the Lord. And so they, they've never had their own, you know, stories to tell. And some of them I've heard say, well, I always regret that. I don't have my own story to tell. Listen, your story, your one sin that you've committed in your life, and I'm making that as a joke, but, you know, that one sin infinitely separates you from God. What you have to understand is that sin, one sin, as James said, breaks the whole law. And so you should appreciate the grace of God, even if you think that you have only done a few small things in your life, because you are no better than the drug addict. You're no better than the murderer on death row. You're no better than any of them. 
The fact is that one sin breaks the law, and it is the law by which sin is imputed. And so it's done. You have now been imputed sin, and you are infinitely separated from a creator. So anybody that walks around smugly and thinks that they, the grace they got wasn't as necessary as the grace that that guy over there got, they're delusional. Okay? It's, it's just, how are you going to understand that? Do you appreciate it, or do you not appreciate it? You were doomed. You were doomed. Were that's doomed. right. Doesn't matter how I was a little doomed. I was a little doomed. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was just a little bit doomed. It wasn't a lot. Well, it was. So, anyway, 3 9. What's that? I read this thing that says they become part of the community. What are they talking about when they say that you, you come out or the Gentile come out and now they're a part of the community? Well, now, I, they don't say church. Oh, you're saying like church bulletins or something, or where where are you no, hearing? No, no, no. I was reading. I, I was reading uh, Luke chapter one, and it says these people came out as part of the community. This was a commentary, but I've read that that, that term time and again, and I don't know what it. What I I have no idea. I've never heard the term community. Oh, you're right? talking. You're talking about coming into the faith in Christ. Yeah, yeah. It's probably just a way of saying you know you're now in the body of Christ. You know, I don't know. I've never read a commentary that says that that I can think of. Okay. But you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ, and that's all there is to it. There's there's no, you know, I'm my foot's in, but the rest of me isn't, or something. So whatever term somebody wants to use, I mean, that may be an older British term. I don't know who you're reading that would say that, but you know, you're you're brought into the Commonwealth. That's what Paul says. Paul uses the word Commonwealth, and that's it. The Jews are promised these things, and. When they're in Messiah, they get those things. And guess what? The Gentiles, you can go back to Isaiah, and he says, it's too small of a thing for me to save Israel. I'm going to save the Gentiles too. I mean, it's very clear there that he's going to do a work in the world, and we are all brought into that commonwealth. That means that everybody shares in the wealth of the riches of Christ, okay? But it doesn't mean we're Israel. It doesn't mean that, you know, whatever term somebody uses, because, you know, we use synonyms all the time. Community, commonwealth, they don't mean the same thing, but somebody may just be using that term. That, that's, I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to read the commentary before I was certain what they were thinking, but anyway, okay, um, 3 9. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Okay, that one drops off a little bit. It does. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery that you're said to make plain. This one says make all see. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Okay, so that drops out a little bit in that one. Anyway, and you know, of course you'll get people that say, well, the text you're using is a bad text because it doesn't say something like that. But if you go to their text in other places, it'll add in and say, you know, save through the blood of Christ and this text won't say it. So, you know, people people pick and choose their wrong arguments, um, and that's just not a good argument to go with. Okay, 3.9. In this verse are a few words which differ in manuscripts. There you go. The first notable one is fellowship. In Greek, the word is koinonia. However, other manuscripts say dispensation. The word is oikonomia. The mistake in translation would be easy to make. The second major difference is that the words through Jesus Christ, there you go, are not in some manuscripts. Neither of these changes the doctrine of Scripture. It may not be in that verse, and you can say, well, that verse is, you know, blah, 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 but it doesn't change the doctrine of Scripture because you're going to find the exact same terms elsewhere in whatever 
source text you use. Okay, so the doctrine is there. Even if it's not in this verse, it is there elsewhere. Okay, so uh, neither of these changes the doctrine of Scripture. For the sake of consistency in analysis, the evaluation will assume, and I do this, it assumes that the New King James Version is correct through Jesus Christ should be in there and that the word should rather be, um, what is it, 3-9, um, the mystery beginning of the ages hidden in God, um, fellowship, okay, the word fellowship as opposed to whatever you had in yours, administration. okay, uh, administration or dispensation, okay, <clears throat> now I'm only doing this, I'm only assuming it because I use the King James Version for my commentaries, okay, and it's not worth arguing over somebody when he says, well, this, okay, when you read a lot of study Bibles. It'll say the best manuscript says. Has anybody ever seen that in the comment of a Bible down at the bottom? Well, you, if you read the footnotes, it'll say that. They'll say the oldest and best manuscripts say this. Okay, that's immediately a bias. Just because something is older does not mean that it's better. Okay, um, that's one error. Or the location of where something is found does not mean that it is worse or better. King James only people will say, well, I've heard this several times. Uh, the, um, those texts were found in a garbage can in Egypt. And everybody knows that Egypt is a hotbed of apostasy. It becomes a catchword. You hear them say that, and you know they read that on some King James-only site. Okay, just because something is found in a monastery, and it actually wasn't in a garbage can, it was just, you know, it, it was haphazardly. haphazardly stored, that's right. But they'll use terms like that to degrade something. That's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is if the text is valid or not. Okay, same thing on the other side. You'll get people that will say, well, that's not valid because, uh, and this was maintained longer without being lost, or, you know, people just make up arguments. So when you read the best texts say, ignore that. That's a subjective thing. There's no way of proving if it's a best text or not. What you want to do is you want to go to the specialists, which take these texts, thousands of them, and they compare them and they analyze them, and they find out how this mistake was entered into the Bible, or how this word was lost out of it as it was translated, and they can tell. These people do this. They know based on the, how the paragraph is laid out, okay? They can see his eye went up, and he saw this word, and then he repeated it here, or whatever. There's all kinds of uh, analyses that these people do. They're called critical scholars, and they study texts, and they know how errors creep in and how errors of missing translation or missing words creep or are you know, taken out, okay? So when you read that, just ignore best text. What I do is for these studies, I use the New King James Version, and then unless it is as obvious as the nose on your face why it is wrong, I just go with this, this particular uh, commentary, okay? But there are times where something really is obvious that it is incorrect, especially with Old Testament documents, okay? The Old Testament, it is so obvious with many of the errors that are in there, especially with the Masoretic text where they, they change things purposefully to hide Christ. There's no point in sticking with the Masoretic text in that instance, okay? The New Testament is a little bit different. They have thousands and thousands of copies of it, and they have to really do analysis, compare how many have this, which ones do, which ones don't, why would it not be in there, etc. Okay, so just to get that out of the way, we'll assume here that the New King James Version is correct. However, this does not mean it is. 
It is simply the New King James Version which is being used for this study. Paul says first, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That's Paul's words. The word see properly means to illuminate or to enlighten. <clears throat> he is saying that the grace bestowed upon him was that he would be used as the means of making all see this fellowship of the mystery of the Gentiles being brought into the new covenant through the work of Christ. That's the mystery he's focusing on. Why are the Gentiles brought in? How did it happen? And you know how is God glorified through that, etc.? Well, I can tell you this. If the Gentiles were not brought into the new covenant, there would not have been much glory for God for the past 2,000 years, okay? Because a handful of Jews around the world would have been there. Eventually, they would have been persecuted out of existence, and there would have been no church at all. But God knew that this was going to happen. He graciously allowed the Gentiles to participate in the covenant blessings that Israel had, and the church has grown exponentially. It is gigantic. Obviously, there's a lot of, as we were talking about earlier, apostate churches. You get people that just take it and twist it, and they're not even a part of the body. Or you get very weak nominal Christians that may be saved, but they just, they don't, their theology is lacking, whatever. But the fact is that Christianity has been the chief religion for the past 2,000 years because of Paul bringing the Gentiles in as he was instructed to by Christ. He is the one that brought this in, and that's why Paul's letters are so important for this dispensation. And so that's why we study them. That's why we think about them, and we cherish what God did through his writings. Okay, so um, where is that? Yes, as previously explained, a mystery is something which was hidden and has now been revealed. It could not otherwise have been known without God directly revealing it to the world. From the beginning of the ages, it was hidden. God knew it all along, even before he created a single thing. He knew what he was going to do, but it has been hidden until this time. Only a select line of people were considered the sons of God. We were to, Who was I talking? Nephilim. I was talking with him today of Nephilim. The sons of God in the Bible are always human beings. They are not angelic beings. That is faulty theology. If you disagree, please just disagree, but you're wrong. The rest of the world were considered in the broader sense of being sons of men. One line was destined for God's favor, the other was destined for destruction. It is through Paul that the mystery is made known that the Gentile people of the world would now have access to and be participants in the workings of God concerning their redemption and salvation. Okay, uh, wait a minute. Oh, I see. Yeah, here we are. Um, Got to make a note. I'm sorry, didn't mean well, to stop. Doing it. It. Let me just say that uh, uh, yes, uh, Israel is God's chosen people, and I've always said, for what? Yeah, chosen for what? When you say that you're the chosen people, chosen for what? And that's when a Jew says, "Well, we're the chosen people." That's all you need to do is ask them, for what? Okay, let them think about it and stew on it. It's not for their glory. God doesn't need their glory. It's for His glory. Okay. That's what it's for. Chosen for what? When, when a Jewish person says, we are the chosen people, or you hear that term passed around, chosen for what? It's to bring God the glory. And how is he going to get it through them? Because they've been disobedient for 2,000 years. They have rejected him. They have blasphemed his name everywhere they've went in the world, and they're doing it to this day with pride parades in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. But God will bring them back into covenant faithfulness. It is for the glory of God that they were chosen. And 
Their disobedience does not in any way negate his faithfulness in any way, shape, or form. God is faithful to the unfaithful, and that is a picture, a template of our salvation. When he saves us, he saves us forever. It is done. Okay, so that's a good point right there. Um, you know, I just realized that um, Don and Pam are back. They, the people that were here a couple weeks ago, they went back to move from Fort Bragg down to Bradenton. They are back. He hurt his knee, and she hurt her foot this past week while uh, working. And so keep them in prayer. I, I just thought of it right now because I, I didn't write them down because I thought maybe they would come to class, but they're not here. So keep Don and Pam in prayer as well. They've got a lot of work to do to move in. They've got these, you know, shipping pods. They got several of those. And so it's not as stressful as it could be, but keep Don and Pam in, uh, in uh, prayer. And we'll hope that they get moved in and are just as happy as uh, bugs in a rug with uh, their new home. And uh, we'll just pray that it's a, a real blessing to them. Okay. He finishes up with the note that it is God, as he says, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the word of God created all things. This is reflected right in John 1. Okay, so God created, God the Father created, God the Holy Spirit was there in creation. Jesus created, you know, unless you just don't understand what the Bible is saying, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's as obvious as the nose on your face that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and God the Father is God. There must be something more to it than just this thing that people make up. It's called the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay. The Jehovah's Witnesses feel it's necessary to insert the word A in front of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. And they make the G small. Okay, the Greek does not support that. Okay, it's not something that you would put in there and say, see, this validates that. Okay, um, the, the uh, I just lost my train of thought. Anyway, Jesus Christ is God. There are no lesser gods, and when Paul says there are many gods, he is saying that in a way that, yeah, well, you know, the Greeks have their gods, and these people have their gods, but he's not saying that they're real gods. He's just using the term in the sense of from our perspective, not from God's perspective. In John 1, it is from God's perspective, and there is one God and no other. And so that's another just logical uh, explanation of John 1, without getting into the technical Greek, which I am not a specialist in. Okay, anyone, the anyway. Greek, the Greek doesn't capitalize. No, there's no capitalization in Greek or in Hebrew. Having said that, there is what's known as majuscule and minuscule. Most Greek, uh, uh, what am I saying, texts are in the minuscule. All it is is just little letters, and they just run on and on. There's no spacing, there's no punctuation, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, it's just it's written in minuscule. Or some people will write in majuscule. They'll write all big letters. The whole text is in big. But there's no capitalization as we would think, okay? Like Charlie has a capital C and then small H-A-R-L-I-E. They don't do that, okay, in these texts, okay? Same thing with the Hebrew. It is just all the same. And if you see, I was talking to, um, Spencer was here uh, over the weekend, and we were talking, and 
uh, I was asking him about the coming sermon here, just to kind of get him to think about it in advance. And I said, and we'll read really quickly, let me read that. And then we'll get back into finishing that commentary um, because we have just enough time to do that without getting into another verse. In Deuteronomy 18, and it's verse 15, I asked him, just so he could be ready for the sermon, is the prophet that is being spoken of in these verses a single prophet or is it speaking of many prophets? It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And I said, now I want you to know while I'm reading this that they have prophet capitalized and they've got he and him capitalized. So that is not in the original. And that is what you would call inserting a presupposition. The New King James Version believes that this is speaking of a single prophet, a single person who is obviously referring to Jesus, okay? But that's not in there. And by doing that, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but by doing that, they have now put a presupposition into somebody's mind that it is speaking of it. And if they're wrong, then now that person has bad theology. Everybody see that? I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm not going to give the answer until Sunday. But what I am saying is that if you read that and you go on down to verses 21 through 22, it speaks of false prophets. And so all of a sudden, he was certain at the beginning when I was reading that it's referring to Jesus. But then when you read the, to the end of the chapter, suddenly it sounds like it's a succession of prophets. So you can read those verses in the next couple of days. Don't send me an email and tell me your opinion because I know what I believe and I will present what I believe. But you think about it. Is that speaking of only one prophet or is it speaking of a succession of prophets? Okay, and I'll give you the answer. And when um, Spencer asked about it, I said, well, same thing I did you. I'm not going to tell you until next week. And he also said, I don't want to know. But I said, the way that you determine this is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you do that, then you will know if it's speaking of a succession of prophets or a single prophet. Okay. Don't, don't, don't. I, I don't want to go over it right now. Okay. That's, that's not for now. That's for Sunday. I told you to think about it. And when you have thought about it. What? To keep with the translational thing. Okay, here it is. The NIV drops the through Jesus Christ. Right. That However, when I go to Deuteronomy 18.15, prophet is small p. Okay. And so like. It, it yeah, in, in their translation. Yeah, whereas the New King James Version. Has it capitalized. Capital. That's right. So you can see that one is going to be right mm -hmm. and one is going to be wrong. And they have chosen in the NIV to make it a small p because they believe it is a succession of prophets. And I will cite scholars during the sermon. Burke has his opinion already made up and he's based it on something that he believes is correct. And so he will read this and then we'll talk about it when we're done. But I just don't want him infecting other people's minds until they have made up their mind. Okay. Well, no, I, what I'm saying is because it will. They will now have a presupposition in their head. And I don't want them to do that until I have given them my own 
presupposition, and then they can argue if I if I disagree with Burke, then okay, so there you go. Anyway, um, and I will defend what I believe and why, but I want you, that's your homework before Sunday, is to read those verses and decide on your own without the capitalization or the small. Ignore that and just read those verses all the way through and think about it, okay? And also what's in Scripture, as Burke uh, obviously knows. And so I hope nobody online heard that because uh, it was it was exactly what should be. Okay, so we're going to go on. We're going to finish this up. We've got a few minutes. Um, uh, John 1, 13. Okay, 1, 1 through 3. <clears throat> and that's that answers your question, though, is a lot of capitalization in the Bible. is, And so the ESV, which I'm not really happy with because they do not capitalize things about Jesus in the New Testament, okay, which I think they should. They don't. But by not doing that, they get out of kind of a theological argument with people by not capitalizing in the Old Testament. They just leave it all small and let you decide, I suppose. I don't know. But um, that's their choice and their translation. It is totally translator's preference how they do it. But if a translator is wrong in some part of the Old Testament and they capitalize something, then they've introduced that into somebody's mind that maybe shouldn't be or vice versa. I would say that that's pretty rare that they would do that wrong because it's pretty obvious, you know, even in the Old Testament, who is speaking of. Here's a good example of this. In, uh, in Isaiah 9, it calls Jesus El Gibor, the mighty God, okay? And in that passage, modern translations know that it's speaking of Jesus, and so what do they do? They capitalize mighty God, okay? That term is used only one other time in the Bible. It's in the next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 10, El Gabor. But if you go to the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, it's small in both, okay? Or maybe it's small in the that one and it's capitalized in the old. I don't know. All I know is that when I was talking to one about that, he said, well, see, it's capitalized here and it's not capitalized there. And I told him, that's because your people chose to do that. There is no capitalization in the Hebrew. And he got all flustered after that because he's thinking that his translation is his perfect translation. And it's not. It's a manipulated translation. God would not make the error of putting one word in the Bible only two times, one chapter apart, and say this one is speaking of a divine person and this one isn't. God would not make that error. Okay? So, uh, come on in. Come on in. Here we go. I can't speak for the Old Testament. The New Testament. It's pretty clear. Since they wrote it in Greek, there are no capitalizations in Greek. Their words that they were expressing had to be different in the fact that they, hey, how are you? I'm okay. But they would, they would have to like say, okay, you know what? I'm not capitalizing this about Jesus. So I'm going to like, you know, I have to say something to make it clear. Oh, yeah, that but yeah, and that's Jesus, true. You know? in, yeah, anywhere you want. In, in the Greek. There are very, very few verses in the New Testament where it is not as obvious as the nose on your face that is speaking of Jesus. Right, right. There's, there are very few where people ever are, have to argue about that. So there's no need for us to worry about the, the New Testament if it's referring to Christ or not. Okay. Anyway, we got to finish this up. We'll get that done. What Paul is doing with the addition of these words is showing that the same member of the Godhead, Christ Jesus, is also the one who is the establisher of of this new outcropping of his redemptive plans. Everything dealing with the creation is done through Jesus Christ, including the creation of one new man out of the two, both Jew and Gentile. Thank you very much. Is everything work out okay? I mean, everything's fine. Good. It's a little off for the message.
Oh, she's right there. She'll be all appreciative. Thank you very, very much. All right, say hi to that lovely wife of yours for us. Have a great evening. All right, now. Um, let's see here. Oh, let me finish up the commentary, and then we'll be done in just a second here. Um, he's uh, everything detailing with the dealing with the creation is done through Jesus Christ, including the creation of one two, one man out of the two, both Jew and Gentile. This is the mystery of the fellowship which had been hidden for so very long. This is what Paul now refers to, reveals to the world through his writings. Life application, if you want to understand the church age and the doctrine by which it is governed, you need to understand Paul's letters. To reject Paul is to reject the church of this dispensation. To reject the church during this dispensation is to reject what Jesus Christ is doing in the world for humanity. Stay away from anyone who would twist or diminish the words of Paul as given by the Holy Spirit through him. That is absolutely as important as it can be. That when people take Paul's words, the Hebrew Roots Movement are famous for this and they twist them. They are doing it to their own peril. A lot of them are not saved. A lot of them were saved people that just never studied in the church. They never got proper theology and they got pulled into this and there is no happiness among them. There's no joy among them. And the people that have come to that type of an organization without first knowing Christ will never be saved. Okay, they are not going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus trying to work their way to heaven. It's an infinite climb. They've got a finite amount of time to make it and they will never make it. So be very careful about things like that. If you hear people twisting Paul's words, they don't know anything about scripture. Run from them. That's absolutely right. Because Paul, without what he says and without how he defines the dispensations, there's nothing but chaos in the Bible. Everything falls apart. And that's the same with anything. You take out any part of the word and you're going to have chaos for the rest of the Bible. Take out, you know, uh, uh, hell. Take out condemnation. Take out anything that liberal theologians don't feel comfortable with and you're going to have problems with your theology for the rest of your life. Okay, this word is too tender and it's too precious to go messing around with it. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and we thank you for this class, even though it was a short one. We uh, certainly pray for Dr. and Mabel as they head north for the year, and we would pray that they'd have a safe trip up and that they'd have a good and happy time while they're in North Carolina. While we're sweating, they'll be in the cool, and we're jealous about that, but we know that you'll be blessing them while they're there. We pray that they'll have a good fellowship to attend and uh, wonderful people that they can uh, uh, worship with and that you'll bring them back safely once again to sunny Sarasota when it's a little fairer weather. Lord, we also pray for Pam and Don who are uh, back down in Florida now and uh, they had some pains this week and we pray that you'll continue to keep them strong and able to get their house set up. Lord, we uh, just thank you for every good blessing that you blessed us with. We ask that you bless the food that we're about to partake in and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me back this up. I'm sorry folks for such a short class and kind of a disorganized class. Let's see. Break, break, break. Uh, a break.